0: And we'll start on page 35, lab values. You have to know your lab values. But the good news is you don't have to know them all. Just certain ones that everybody else knows. The only... Well, there's kind of more bad news, and that is, not only do you have to know lab values, but you have to know which lab values are more dangerous than what other lab values. So if you knew 10 lab values, you need to know which ones are high priority, which ones are middle priority, and which ones are low priority. Because they will ask you to prioritize people according to their lab values. Like they'll give you four different patients, a patient with a potassium of 7.4, potassium with a pH of 6.8, a person with a hemoglobin of 10, and a person with a BUN of 54, and they want to know who's your highest priority patient. That kind of thing. So it's not good enough just to know the values themselves. Because they will give you four people, all of them have abnormal lab values. All of them do. So what you have to do is then rank them you know, on who's highest, who's lowest priority. So what I want to do is teach you that, because I don't believe any school I know of teaches students how to prioritize lab values. They teach you the lab values. They teach you the numbers, the ranges. What's normal, what's abnormal. They teach you what high means, what low means. <laughs> They teach you the significance of the test, but they don't teach you that a hemoglobin of seven is a higher priority than a person with an INR of 3.4. Do you see what I'm saying? They don't, they don't get to that. Now, does, am I mistaken? Are some schools doing that? Are any schools doing that? I if they
1: pretty much just potassium not it.
0: They just say potassium is bad. <laughs> and that's probably, probably on boards, that would probably be the least you should know, at least that. But well, I'm going to give you a, a scheme here. You see the legend at the top of the page where it says A B C D. A means that it's not a priority. I mean, it's a low priority. It's not a big deal. Yes, it's abnormal. The, ab- the lab is abnormal, but really, there's nothing you need to do about it. In fact, in real life, if see what I'm going to do is let me back up. What I'm going to do is I'm going to for every lab value I give you. I'll tell you whether the abnormal is an A, a B, a C, or a D. I'll assign a priority letter to it. Are you understanding where we're headed with this? And when I tell you that a lab abnormality is a level A, what I'm trying to communicate to you is that yes, it is abnormal. And yes, it could mean there is the presence of disease. But in the scheme of things, this is really no big deal. In fact, you don't have to do anything about it. In other words, if a lab report came back and it's an A-level, you could ignore it all night long and have the doctor discover it in the morning and you wouldn't be in any trouble for having that happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? However, if I tell you it's a C-level, level C, letter C, and you do nothing about it all night long, and the doctor finds out about it in the morning, you are in major trouble. So, I'm trying to give you a feel for how important it is that you must report these or do something immediately. So, when A is abnormal, yes, but you do nothing about it, it's no big deal. A letter B, it is abnormal, and you need to be concerned, but there's nothing you need to do. You just kind of watch them closer. Have you? had the experience where you had a lab value that was abnormal but it really wasn't all that bad so you didn't have to do anything but you, but that lab abnormality said to you watch them closer, watch them closer that's what I'm trying to tell you a B is when I tell you that a lab value is a C we've now crossed a line from low priority to high priority when a lab reaches a C value it is critical, you must do something about it, you can't just sit on that lab value and do nothing. If I tell you that a lab abnormality is a D, I'm trying to communicate to you that it is the highest priority that you can possibly have with a lab value. So what's the lowest priority? A. Followed by? B. And then what are two high priorities? C. And the highest of all is? B. D. Okay, so just as everybody knows where we're headed here. Okay, now, let's start into this lecture. In the first column, there's the name and anything I want to tell you about it. In the middle column, you'll write the range, the normal range, and in the last column, we'll assign the A, the B, the C, or the D. All righty. Let's talk about creatinine. I told you two days ago that it is the best indicator of kidney or renal function. Now, in this case, I am talking about the serum creatinine because they will not talk about, they will not give you the values for a creatinine clearance, 24 hour creatinine clearance. They, they aren't going to test you that on that, but they will test you on the serum creatinine. Now the serum creatinine is 0.6 to 1.2, which is actually the same numbers as the lithium range. If you recall that from yesterday, the lithium and the creatinine are the same range. Okay, in the middle column, uh, you have that. In the last column, an abnormal creatinine is just a level A. You would never prioritize a person with a high creatinine as your highest priority. Now, do they have kidney disease? If they have a high creatinine, yes. But are they gonna die in the next four hours? No. The next morning, the doctor could come in and go, oh, his creatinine is high, he must have, kidney disease, and that's fine. You're not gonna be in any trouble for it. Probably the only time that I would ever make a high creatinine something that I would actually make a phone call to a doctor about is if they were going for a test that had a dye in it that next morning. Like for example, if they're having a cardiac catheterization where they put the dye in, if they, if the question tells you that they're to have a dye procedure in the morning, I might make a high creatinine, something that I would report. But it wouldn't be in the next hour. It would just be sometime, like like for example, if you got the high creatinine back at midnight, I wouldn't call the doctor till five or six in the morning at the earliest. I might wait till seven. I certainly wouldn't call him at one in the morning. But there are certain lab values you're going to see, well, you call them right away. So this would even then, it wouldn't be a super high priority, but it would be higher than just a plain high creatinine. Does everybody understand that? Okay. The INR, the International Normalized Ratio, it monitors Coumadin therapy. It's like the PT. It's a variation of the prothrombin time. Its normal range should be two and three, in the twos and threes. In other words, you want your I and R's to be in the twos and the threes. Like 2.1, 3.8, that's what you want. In the last column, anything that's above four, or four and above, is a C. Which means it's high priority. You have to do something. This is not one you can ignore. You can ignore the creatinine, but you cannot ignore this one. <clears throat> An INR of 4.2 would defeat, would be a higher priority than a creatinine of 30. Now, when, you, when I assign something a letter C, what do I say are the implications of that? It's critical, and you have to what? Do something now. The question you should be asking is, well, what's the do that I should do? Well, whenever you get a situation where they want to know what are you going to do about something, there's a protocol you need to follow, an order, because this would be a drag and a click and drag. You always hold. That's the first thing you do. What do I mean by hold? If there's something that's causing a problem, stop it first. First. After you hold, then you assess. What would you assess? A whole, complete, head-to-toe physical exam. Yes or no? No. A focused assessment. Focused on what? the area that the lab value is telling you there's some problem with. But do a focused assessment. Then you prepare, which means you prepare to give. Now you don't always give, but you prepare to. And after you prepare, then you call meaning call physician, or call respiratory, or call whomever is appropriate. But before you call the physician, you always hold, assess, and prepare. Now, if we apply this to the INR of 4.7, let's say you get an INR of 4.7, and they wanna know what are you gonna do, in what order, and you have to click and drag. What would be? What would you click first? Mm -hmm. Hold. Hold what? Mm -hmm. Hold coumadin. Hold all coumadin. Then what would you do? Assess Assess for what? Bleeding. Bleeding. Then you would vitamin K. Prepare to give vitamin K, and then you would call your doctor. In that order. Now sometimes. There may be nothing to hold. Do you see what I'm saying? There's nothing to hold. There's no, nothing causing a problem, so you jump immediately to what? Assess. Assess. And sometimes there may not be anything to prepare, so you jump to call. But you should intellectually go through that process with everything you, you do something about so that you're thorough, so that you don't miss a step. <coughs> All right, potassium. Potassium, there's nothing I want to say about it in the first column, except that it's not really a good indicator of anything, but it is an indicator that something's wrong, but you don't know what. Its range is 3.5, and then flip it around 5.3. 3.5 to 5.3. Now for Hesse, for Hesse it's 3.5 to 5.0. For Hesse, it's 3.5 to 5.0. But for boards is 3.5 to 5.3. Why? Why the difference? Yeah, boards is a nationalized Hesse uses whatever Elsevier lab book says. Okay, so to HESI a 5.1 potassium is an elevation. On boards, a 5.1 is not an elevation. Now. Let's talk about the last column. A low potassium, meaning lower than 3.5, is a C. You have to do something. Okay, now, let's go through our protocol. If your potassium is low, is there anything you have to hold? No. So what do you do? But what are you assessing? What's your focus? Heart. Assess heart. Prepare to administer vitamin K. Vitamin K. Potassium. I always do that. I always used to do that. Everybody ever do that? Vitamin K and potassium K? I screwed that up for like 10 years. Okay, and then I what? Call the doc. All right. What if it's between 5.4 and 5.9? That gets a C. So now you have to do something. Well, is it high or low? Hi. So what do you think we would first do? Hold all potassium. And that may mean ripping down the D5W with 20 of KCl. Don't you know I mean getting that torn down. Then you assess the heart. Then you Okay. What? Now, Lasix does make you lose potassium, but we don't give Lasix for the purpose of losing potassium. k and D5W and regular insulin. Remember yesterday? k and D5W and regular insulin. And then you call your doc. However, in the last column, if the potassium is greater than or equal to six, it's a D. It is deadly dangerous. This person could die soon, like in the next two minutes. So what do you do? You do everything we just said. You rip down the IV, you assess the heart, you prepare the D5W, regular insulin, and the k and you call your doctor. You do all that, what? Stats. So how many people have to be involved? You probably got one nurse ripping out the what? Potassium. We got somebody calling for an EKG coming. You, one nurse is preparing the D5W and regular insulin while the secretary's calling the doctor stat. Do you see what I'm saying? And you stay with your patient. Got it? Because you cannot leave the. You can't leave the bedside of a D. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you leave the bedside of a C? Do you even know what I'm talking about, Ds and Cs? Yeah. Mm-hmm. D, okay, yeah. got it, okay. Um, can you leave the bedside of a C? Yeah. yeah. Can you leave the bedside of a D? No. Nope. No, so one of the things you're gonna have to remember when you're answering these D questions is you stay at the bedside and you do what you can do at the bedside, but everybody else helps you do everything else. You don't run out and get the EKG and leave your patient by themselves with a potassium of seven, okay? Now, I'm, I'm not saying you do this in real life. You should do it in real life, but I'm saying this is what the book wants you to do. And really, if you really did this, you, would, you wouldn't get in trouble. You'd, your patient would be in good shape. Okay. Um, the pH, 7.35, 7.45 is the range, which you told me the other day. In the last column, the only thing that matters is a pH in the sixes is a D. Now I don't mean 7.6 I'm talking about 6 point something in the sixes. Now you notice that I don't... do you notice with the creatinine I didn't go I didn't talk about a low creatinine, did you notice that? And In an INR I didn't talk about a low INR and here I'm not talking about a high pH because those aren't that clinically significant and they're not usually tested at all. You start saying? These are the things that are tested over and over and over again. So rather than have you learned everything, let's focus on what's essential. All righty. pH in the sixes. So what do you do? Is there anything to hold? I can't think of anything. What would you assess? Now this is interesting. What do you think you'd assess? Somebody said respiration. Somebody said pulse. There you go. Lump them together, check your vital signs. Because the pH is going in what direction? Down. And as the pH goes, so goes your patient. So the patient is going to be going what? Down and out. And you're checking, I mean, with a pH is in the sixties, to be totally com- transparent and honest with you, you're doing the vitals to make sure they're still alive. I, I know that sounds Ridiculous, but you really are because I mean usually when you have a six you're dead So you're just making sure they're alive, and then is there anything to prepare? Not really used to be years ago because they were severely acidotic we would prepare Bicarbonate to give bicarb, but you don't do that anymore. You don't indiscriminately give bicarbonate like if you've ever been taught that No, you don't do that You don't give bicarb anymore to acidotic patients because it confuses the whole issue. The key is to correct this acidosis. The only way you can correct it is to treat the underlying cause. And there is nothing a nurse can do to treat the underlying cause. The physician has to get here, determine the cause, and treat the cause. So, with a low pH, you have to get the physician in on the case faster than anything else we'll talk about today. So that's why you just assess their vital signs and you call your doc. And you skip hold and you skip prepare. Now why are you getting the vitals?
1: Because
0: when you call the doc, what are they going to say? Is he alive? (laughs) You know, is he breathing? What's his heart doing? You know, so get a set of vitals. That's all you need, set of vitals call the doc, and you stay. So who gets the vitals? You do. Who calls the doc? Maybe some, you know, get a, put on the light or whatever, and however you communicate to your secretary, unit secretary, and have them call stat. Okay, BUN, blood urea nitrogen, BUN. It has a lot to do with waste, nitrogen waste products in the blood. Its range is eight to twenty-five. Eight to twenty-five. The way I remember that is B U N spells what English word? Bun. Buns, like hamburger buns, hot dog buns. When you buy hamburger buns or hot dog buns, how many are in the pack? Eight. eight. There's your eight. Buns, eight. Eight to twenty-five. And if the B U N is elevated, you it's no big deal all you do is assess them for dehydration. Assess them for dehydration. By the way, a little hint, good guessing strategy here. If they give you an elevated blood value and you have no clue what's going on and they ask you for what would you assess them, dehydration is a great answer. Because when you dehydrate, what happens to all blood values? They go up because of concentration. So it's just a really good, good guess to say, when the BU ends up, oh, I don't know what it is. Well, pick dehydration, good answer. You may be wrong, but it was a good answer. Yeah. Might not have made the top 10 surveys, but you know, it's not bad. I don't know why I had an extra L on the end of elevated, but you know. Hemoglobin is the next one. It's 12 to 18. Now, yeah, I know it's 12 to 16 for women and 14 to 18 for men, but for humans, it's 12 to 18. And boards doesn't get into... Lab values, versus men versus women, children versus adults, newborns versus, they, they could be on your test, but those are really hard questions and you do not have to get those right. But if you don't know a normal adult hemoglobin, you're in trouble. If it's eight to 11, if the hemoglobin is eight to 11, it's a B and you would assess them for what? Low hemoglobin, anemia, Anemia, a bleeding or malnutrition. If the hemoglobin, however, falls below an eight, it's a C, and you must do something. Okay, well, what are you gonna do? You gonna hold anything? Not that I know of. You're gonna assess for? Bleeding. You're gonna prepare to administer? blood and you're gonna call the doctor. Now LPNs, you would you would prepare, but you would call, I am mean, not on this, but on everything where we've said call doctor, you could substitute notify RN. Do you see what I'm saying? You could wherever it's this could say hold assess prepare notify RN. Alrighty um, bicarb. The bicarb is what? 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 6, right? 22 to 26. And an abnormal bicarb is an A. We don't care. So what? You know, I've never, in 37 years of being a nurse, I have never been yelled at by anybody because I didn't tell them what somebody's bicarb was. It's just not a major issue. Okay, CO2, carbon dioxide. This is in, this you are getting from an arterial blood gas, by the way. The normal range is 35 to 45. It's the same as the pH, just dropping off the seven point, correct? In the last column, a CO2 that's high but in the 50s, like 51, 57, 56, 59, those are C levels. Those are. That's a C, which means it's critical. You can't just sit on it. You got to do something about that. That's not good. Now, on, I want to say a disclaimer. I'm not talking about COPD clients here at all. That changes everything. This is for people without COPD. So what do you do? Well, is there anything to hold? A high CO2, anything to hold? I don't think so. What would you assess?
1: Respiration.
0: Respiratory status. Now, when it comes to prepare on this one, there is actually something you can do. There is actually something you can independently, as an LPN or an RN, do. What would that be? Breathing in a bag. Okay, breathing in a bag actually Recirculates the CO2, so we don't want that. That would be raising the CO2. What's that? Oxygen, oxygen is used for low oxygen, not for high CO2. What's that? Blow down, like on your thumb. I read that if you
1: actually put your thumb in your mouth, it
0: would blow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like, like your. Yeah, or they'll say the candle, this is a candle, blow out the candle. That is called pursed lip breathing. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. This is what you're going to pick, pursed lip breathing. Because with pursed lip breathing, you're, you're prolonging the exhalation. And if you prolong exhaling, you're getting rid of CO2. Now, most of the time, that will correct the problem, so you never have to move to what? call. How do you know it's going to correct the problem? They will breathe easier. Because when they're in the 50s, it's going to be dyspneic. They'll be dyspneic when their CO2 is in the 50s. So that will will solve that problem. However, what if the CO2 is in the 60s? That's a D. That's one of the criteria for making the diagnosis respiratory failure. Have you heard of respiratory failure? Well, how how do you know someone's in respiratory failure? Well, one of the ways you know is the CO2 is 60 and above. Now, here again, we're not talking about COPDers. So this is a medical emergency. This is a super high-priority patient. So you do not what? Leave the room. You stay with them. So is there anything to hold in this case? Nope. Assess their respiratory, respiratory status. Now, pursed lip breathing isn't going to cut it. Now, I will probably do it with them just to decrease their anxiety and maybe take the edge off of it. But I'm going to have to prepare for what two things because they're in respiratory failure. Intubate and ventilate. So you prepare to intubate and ventilate. <coughs> And then who do you call? There's two people to call. Who do you call first? Respiratory therapy first. Call respiratory therapy first. Then call the physician. But you stay with your patient. Yes?
1: At that point, would you the
0: like a code? Well, I got a pre-code. A right. pre-code. Yeah. Um, on boards, they really don't have anything that's called an emergency response pre-code team. They don't that's certain hospitals have that, some don't. And because it's not a universal phenomenon across the nation in every hospital, they won't even go there. But I would say, if I were you, and I had one of those teams in my at my disposal in a hospital, yes, at this point I would, because this person's gonna end up on a vent. If, and that's the best that's gonna happen. You know, the worst could happen before. So, yeah. All right, uh, hematocrit. Hematocrit is tw- uh, 36 to 54. 36 to 54. Now, I don't remember that. That's why I had to think it for a few seconds before I said it. I never remember that. Because that, that's a clumsy number. 36 54, you know, it's just sloppy. Well, it's three times the hemoglobin. So whatever the hemoglobin is, multiply that by three. And that's why I had to do the math in my head there for a second before I told you. So 12 times three is... 36, and 18 times 3 is 54. So, it's 36 to 54. Okay, an elevated hematocrit. An an elevated hematocrit. It's abnormal. It's a B. An elevated hematocrit. What would you assess for? Dehydration. Good job. Dehydration. But it's no big deal. Okay, let's talk about the oxygen level, the PO2, the oxygen level. Here again, you're getting this from the arterial blood gas. This is not what you're getting when you put on uh, the pulse ox on their finger, or their earlobe. That is not the PO2. The PO2 is from the blood gas. Now the PO2 normally should be 78 to 100. 78. To 100 is the normal range. If it is low, but still in the 70s, like 70 to 77, that is a C, which means you have to do something, it's critical. So is there anything to hold? No. You assess what? Respiratory. Now there is something you can do, both LPNs and RNs, without a physician's order, and what is that? Give them oxygen, because their oxygen is low. So now you give them oxygen. And nine times out of 10, what will happen? Will it correct it or not? It will correct it, and you will not have to call your physician. And how will you know it corrects it? Because you're not having a continuous arterial blood gas measurement. You'll know because the dyspnea goes away and the restlessness and the anxiety and the tachycardia. By the way, just, just an interesting thing so, that everybody, so I know everybody knows this because they love to test this. When someone is hypoxic, which rate increases first? The respiratory rate or the heart rate? Heart rate. Heart rate. So when you go hypoxic, your heart rate will speed up first. Then, when the heart can no longer compensate for it, your respiratory rate goes up. A lot of people think, oh, hypoxic, your respiratory rate will go up first. No, it won't. Your heart rate goes up first. If you ever work coronary care, what are the two most common causes of episodic tachycardia in heart patients. Hypoxia and dehydration. So a coronary care nurse knows that when you get these episodic tachycardias all you have to do is increase the IV rate and give them some oxygen and it goes away and you never have to call your doctor. I would have to say 90% of the time that I have episodic tachycardia in the coronary care unit when I worked night shift there for 10 years. It's at was at Mercy Medical Center in Springfield, now called Springfield uh, Regional whatever, mall. Um, uh, I never had to call doctors, because I would just up the IV rate or give them oxygen, and I'd, the tachycardia would go away. You always could tell a new nurse who came into coronary care because they were calling doctors in the middle of the night for episodic tachycardia. And the doctor would say, well, did you increase the IV rate? No. Did you give them oxygen? No. Well, do that and call me back if it doesn't work. You know, And that, I'm saying it politely. Okay. Okay, well, what if it's low in the 60s, meaning 68, 69, 64, 63? That's a D. That's the other criteria for respiratory failure. So what are the two defining characteristics for respiratory failure? CO2 in the 60s and an O2 in the 60s. When they're both in the 60s, that's when you need to intubate and ventilate them. So if it's in the 60s, there's nothing to hold, you assess the respiratory status, you prepare to intubate and ventilate, you call respiratory therapy, and you call the doctor. Now, you can put oxygen on them during that time. It's not gonna solve the problem, but it's gonna make them a little more calm. So if I had a click and drag on that one, how would I put, where would I put the oxygen? I'd probably do this. I'd probably hold, I wouldn't hold anything. I'd assess, well no, I'd probably, there's nothing to hold. I'd probably throw on the O2 just to make them what? Comfortable. Yeah. Then I'd assess them, and then I'd prepare to intubate and ventilate, call respiratory therapy, and call the doctor. Sorry. Yeah? That kind of confused me, because I was always like had I guess to always assess first, and you're safe,
1: like in any question. Like,
0: could no, be you're not. Like... That's a gross oversimplification. She said that she was taught that you, in an order question, you always assess before you do. And that's true 80% of the time. 20% of the time it's wrong because there's something you need to hold before you assess. For example, uh, you're giving a blood transfusion and somebody complains of itching and you see hives. What do you do? Stop the blood, then you do your assessment. That would probably, that, I'm just, I don't think, just in my impression, I think if you asked 50 nurses, you'd have half and half on that. And so I don't really, I can't conceive that they would write that question on boards because it would be such an interpretive thing. Subjective. Subjective kind of thing. But if, if the INR is five, Every nurse says, "I'm going to stop the cumin and then I'm going to find out assess." You know that they would all say that. Mm-hmm. And if the is six, they'd say, "I'd stop, turn off the IV, and then assess their heart." Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, it's it's going to be. There are certain things where I always tell people this: assess before you do, unless delaying doing puts your patient at higher risk. And if you would assess for signs of blood react, transfusion reaction, if you delayed stopping the blood to do an assessment of are they having a reaction, you would be putting the person at increased risk. So therefore you do before you assess. Does that? So what's the rule, everybody? Assess before you do unless delaying doing in order to assess puts the patient at risk. For example, a patient pulls out their arterial line. They are bleeding in bright red spurts from their radial artery. What's the first thing you do? Assess their vital signs. Apply pressure. (laughs) Okay? Well, one's assess, one's do, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you delay putting pressure in order to take a set of vitals, are you increasing the risk to the patient? Yes, therefore do will precede assess. And that's an obvious one, but I'm, I'm trying to illustrate the principle. Are you seeing that? Yeah. Okay. Good. Good question, because that's one that everybody's taught. How many were taught? Assess before you do. Assess before you do. But you have to understand, whenever you use a rule like that, you have to understand that it's always an exception, and what's the exception? Yes? Um, not Carmel,
1: group always had a question on ATI. It would always catch us up, and it was something about the respiratory situation, which do you do first, and it had heads to bed, yes. and oxygen, and yeah. talking about assessing.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, the thing is, is if I was between... Somebody's having dyspnea, acute dyspnea. One was elevate the head of the bed. The other was put on oxygen. The other was uh, call the doctor, and the others do a respiratory assessment. What would I do? I would elevate the head of the bed first. All righty? Because if I do a respiratory assessment with him lying flat, I'm just it's just... I'm getting data that's not going to be helpful. He's not going to cooperate with me. I'm not going to get good data. I'm not going to get full. So I'm going to elevate the head of the bed first. I always like to do, if I'm between two dos, I like to position first. You know, if I'm between two dos and one's a position and one's another action, I find that the position usually wins over the other action. How many have found that out? Sort of seen that. So I would probably elevate the head of the bed. I would put the oxygen on. I would do an assessment, and then I would call the physician. Now, what did ATI say, I wonder? Is that what ATI said? Mm -hmm. Because I almost always position first. When I'm between what? Two dos, I always position first. And see, my rule there would be, if somebody's in significant dyspnea and hypoxia, would, de- be, would delaying putting their head up and delaying giving them oxygen while I did a respiratory assessment put them in greater risk? And the answer is yes, you would be. You see, so then I would precede the assess with the do's. Do you see that? Yeah, question. So if you
1: raise the head of bed first, what you do best is
0: give them oxygen <laughs> you. Bingo, you're smart, good job. do you hear what she said? She said, but what if it's not a first question? What if it's a best? And you're between oxygen and raise head of bed. Well, in a best question, and I'm really glad, are you here for a refresher or if you, is this the first time you've taken this class? First time? Good job. Um, Because uh, if you had to do one, raise her head without giving her oxygen or keep her flat with oxygen, She really will benefit better from the oxygen lying flat than she will up with no O2. So, best would be O2. First would be raised head of bed. Is everybody seeing that? Good call. Okay. Um, The O2 sat, the oxygen sat should be 93 to 100. Anything less than 93 is a C. Critical. There's nothing to hold. You assess them, you throw on the O2. Now you could, if it, I don't think with an SAO2, unless they're in real, real danger, a low SAO2 is not gonna like an 88. There's no reason to throw on the O2 right away. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't there's no big deal there. In fact, I can't even believe I'm telling you that an SAO2 below 93 is that bad. Because I'm happy with SAO2s of 88 and above. If you think that you're going to run around calling doctors in the middle of the night for SAO2s of 91, you're not going to last long. (laughs) But on HESI particular, and on boards, if it's a 92 SAO2, they're in bad shape. (laughs) And I'm telling you, that's not real life but that's the book. Do You got me? Because Hesse has a question on there where it says they give you four patients and want to know who's your highest priority. And I remember taking it and letter A was a patient with a 91 SaO2 and I went, oh that's fine. You know. And then I went to B and they were okay. And I went to C and they were fine. And I went to D and they were good too. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're all fine. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute wait a minute, 90. it's not 93, it's 91, so that's the the one that's in bad shape. So I picked him, I got it right. So you're just going to have to go with that, all right? Um, Now, anybody ever want to work peds? In pediatrics, you better freak out when it's below 95, okay? Because little kids don't desaturate. Without older people, we desaturate all the time. You know, it's just what we do. (laughs) Um, But little kids don't desaturate. Um, they usually won't go to COPD because then that, that anything can be... There's no... With COPDers, they're going to have abnormal blood gases. But there's no pattern to tell you what it's going to be and how much of one thing means what. Do you see what I'm saying, like they can't say, well, you know, for respiratory failure for a COPD, or it's not 60 and 60, it's 70 and 50. There's no... There are no parameters. Every COPD is... Their blood gases are individually judged on their level of functioning at that blood gas. So if you have a copd with a CO2 of 59, which it should never be, and a O2 of 64, which is horrible, but they're functioning okay, then that's their baseline. Do you see what I'm saying? And the hypercarbia is no issue because they don't have a hypercarbic drive to breathe. They have a hypoxic drive to breathe, so it doesn't even matter. So that's the issue with a little hypoxia is good for a copd because it keeps them breathing. That's why you don't want to give a lot of O2 to a copd or They'll stop breathing on you. So yeah, I don't think that they could even ask a question that would be fair, other than the fact to know that copd normally run high on the CO2, low on the O2. So I guess I, I, my question answered to you would be, if they gave me four patients, and they told me one was a COPD with a CO2 of 55 and an O2 of 71. Even those are those are letter, letter Cs for you and I. I would not make them a high priority. Okay. BMP. Uh, oh, by the way, when is a when is your Sao2 invalid? What invalidates your finger probe Sao2 reading? What's that? Anemia falsely elevates it. So if somebody's anemic, they're gonna look a lot better than they actually are. So when you, if you have an anemic patient, your SAO2 is not helpful. You need to look at other indicators of oxygenation. The other thing that invalidates it is if they've had a dye procedure in the last 48 hours. Why? What does the dye do to blood? color it and what does that read color so you're going to have falsely elevated saO2s with anemia and after dye procedures so in both cases you're going to when you get your saO2 you're going to think the patient is what better off than they actually are which is actually pretty dangerous <coughs> Okay, BNP, which is the brain natriuretic peptide, don't worry about that. Uh, it's the best indicator of congestive heart failure. It should be under 100. <clears throat> An elevated BNP is a B, which just means you've got congestive heart failure, but you're not gonna die. You don't need to call the doctor in the middle of the night. There's nothing you have to do. Just watch him for CHF. See, it sounds kind of funny that a heart value is not a high priority, but this is a heart value because it's indicating a chronic condition. Do you understand why it's not high priority? Because it indicates a chronic condition, not an acute one. Sodium. Sodium is 135 to 145. If it's abnormal, it's a B, which means you assess. If the sodium is high, you assess for dehydration. If the sodium is low, you assess for overload. Remember, hypernatremia, hyponatremia, the one with the E is dehydration, the one with the O is overload. <clears throat> However, if the question tells you the sodium is abnormal and there is a change in LOC, the priority of the patient shoots up to a level C. And basically, it's a safety issue at that point. It's safety. Which brings us to the last three lab values. Yay. You see why I didn't want to do this yesterday at 3.30? White blood cells. There are three white counts you must know. Three white counts you must know. The first one is the total white blood cell count which is 5,000 to 11,000. The other two are the ANC, the absolute neutrophil count, which needs to be above 500. There's no range here, it's just a threshold limit. You must have more than 500 ANCs per cubic millimeter. And the last one is the CD4 count and it needs to be above 200. Because remember when your CD4 falls below 200 what do you have? Not HIV. You got AIDS now. So the, the defining line between HIV disease and AIDS is the 200 CD4. If you've got 201, you have HIV disease. If you've got 199, you have AIDS. So all of those are low white counts. And all of those are a letter C. All of those below those levels. An ANC below 500. A white blood count below 5,000. And a CD4 count below 200 all of those are level C's. They all are. And because of that, there's nothing to hold. You assess for signs of infection. And instead of preparing, what you do is you place them on these neutropenic precautions that are in your last column. And it would be good for you to know those, because they do test what's on the neutropenic precautions. The one that I, I mean, I, it's amazing how you could be a nurse for decades and certain facts you just never learn. It was like 10 years ago, after I've been a nurse for 20 some years, that I l- real, learned uh, the ninth one, I think it's the ninth one down. Don't drink water that has been standing longer than 15 minutes. I didn't realize on these neutropenic precautions, they are not allowed to have a water pitcher. If they want water, you bring them fresh water. The no, water isn't allowed to stand. In fact, the water bottles, if they're unopened, I think they're good for four hours. If they're open, they're good for an hour. Yes? I um, have my leadership
1: on oncology, gynecology, mm-hmm. and I had patients with, who were getting anti yes, transplants. Yes, bone marrow transplant. with a two with a two and the um neutropenic precautions they had to do like this patient you, the nurse when she had this patient you could only have one patient because mm-hmm. exactly the precautions were so rigorous. timely and rigorous
0: and what did they what did they use for these the water bottles what did they use
1: they you weren't allowed to have a water bottle open unless you, know, you drink it right away and they had a special refrigerator were able to go, like, you couldn't just get them regular water. We had to go to the VMT refrigerator, which was always locked. We'd unlock it, get it out, bring it to them, wash them drink it, throw it out, throw it out.
0: out. So it wasn't even an hour. Okay,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I think you'd have for 20 30 minutes to let the patient okay. drink it, you know. Mm-hmm. But there were certain, and then we had to clean the room every like, um. I think it was every, it was either every four or every six we had to clean it down with this really special yeah.
0: room. I mean, it's just, it's, and, they, and so they can the point is they can really get more obsessive than this mm-hmm. a lot more so this is sort of like the least you would do and this is so this is um, see with bone marrow transplants you got to be really really careful because they're really uh, dangerous because what do we do what do we do to them We destroyed, we irradiated total body irradiation. We irradiated all of their protection. They they have none, zero. I'm surprised she had two. I've seen some with practically none. Okay, so um, neutropenics are really important. Okay, platelets. Platelets, I'm not gonna give you a normal range because I've looked in five different books and they don't even overlap. Nobody knows what a normal platelet count is, I don't think. But the key is, what are the trigger values for thrombo cytopenic precautions or bleeding precautions. And that is, in your last column, a platelet count below 90,000 is a C. You need to put them on these, these bleeding precautions. And if the platelet falls below 40,000,